Welcome to PSQH the podcast. I'm your host Jay Kumar, editor-in-chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talked to Peter Colbert, SVP for Healthcare Risk Advisors, about the new wave of lawsuits pertaining to the care of COVID patients. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Peter Colbert, Senior VP for Healthcare Risk Advisors, part of the TDC Group. Welcome, Peter. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. Great to have you. Uh, and before we kind of launch into our discussion about the three-year anniversary of COVID and uh, and sort of uh, what uh, we expect in terms of lawsuits on the way, uh, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and healthcare risk advisors. Sure. We're one of the business units of the doctor's company, and we are uh, a mission-driven company like the doctor's company. As part of the doctor's company, our mission is to advance, protect, and reward the practice of good medicine. Uh, we do an enormous amount of work uh, ensuring, defending, and working with hospitals that provide health care um, across New York State and as part of the doctor's company, healthcare across the country. Uh, I am the chief claims officer for healthcare risk advisors. Uh, I am also the um, COVID coordinator and um, it's sort of a strange title in these times, but when COVID was starting, we were concerned about the number of lawsuits we might see against providers related to COVID. And we wanted to make sure that we provided our insurance with best in class defense, which meant understanding um, and coordinating the defensive claims related to COVID as they occurred against healthcare across the country. All right, well, speaking of which, uh, you know, we just hit the, the three year mark, amazingly, <laughs> since uh, COVID basically be, uh, became uh, in, in everybody's consciousness, but um, what can we expect uh, in terms of this you know, new wave of lawsuits pertaining to the care of COVID patients? Let me, if I can, Jay, let me give a little bit of background. Sure. And, um, and from that background, try to respond to your question. Um, healthcare was put in um, a really challenging position, and healthcare is always a challenging position because um, the mission is with healthcare to detect disease, to diagnose disease, to effectively treat disease as early as possible in the most efficacious fashion for the patient. Um, COVID presented um, the, the, the first pandemic in my professional lifetime, hopefully the last pandemic in my professional lifetime, but COVID presented an enormous challenge because healthcare was asked, in essence, figure this disease out treat it, inoculate against it at the same time. So here it is, figure it out. Uh, healthcare and, and in the United States of America, the crisis really began in New York on the East Coast. It unfortunately sort of spread across the country and, and, and spread around the world. It began elsewhere in the world, obviously. We do remember the pictures and the stories from China. We do remember the things that were happening in Europe. But in New York, suddenly, and it's really important that we contextualize this. Um, you, you know, I, I, I'll call it the um, the period of time from when a disease hits to when the disease ramps up is very different than the period of time from when somebody feels that their treatment was inappropriate till when they file a claim till when the lawsuit gets sort of in full stride. Mm -hmm. The disease process takes. Uh, often you know, a, a more acute period and the lawsuit takes a longer period of time to work. Three years ago, 
the government said to healthcare in New York, you need to double or triple the capacity of your intensive care units, maybe quadruple them. You need to have your emergency rooms ramped up. You need to reorient your staff. You need to have more beds, have more staff, be able to treat more people, and you need to do it now. Uh, we know that you don't know everything there is to know about this, this disease. We know that you're learning about this disease, but we need you to do this. Um, and the hospitals and the professionals in the hospitals, the doctors, the nurses, the physicians, extenders, and said, look, this is their mission. They're committed to this. And they ramped up to do this. At the same time, recognizing that we didn't know about the communicability of this disease. We didn't know what the uh, appropriate protective measures were. And if you remember back three years ago, things like face masks were hard to come by. Yep. Uh, and that's the most basic of the equipment, let alone medications, equipment, ventilators. There was a lot of talk about ventilators. Concomitant with you can tell I went to law school because I used the word. <laughs> hey, somebody's got to use it. <laughs> yeah. When this was happening, recognizing that healthcare was asked to stretch its resources so much more, um, starting in New York and then across the country, um, states enacted qualified immunities. In addition, the Secretary of Health operationalized federal protection under the PREP Act, which is a federal statutory scheme, to really tell healthcare, we have your back. We know there may be claims. Considering what we're asking you to do, we're going to raise the bar for those claims that people need to show gross negligence rather than ordinary negligence. So with that being said, the hospitals, in part on their own, in part in connection with mandates from across the country, they actually canceled elective procedures. Right. They they so screening procedures, elective procedures. They were they were put to the side. Um, emergent and urgent things proceeded, but they were trying to clear the decks to manage the influx of COVID patients. And we all remember those pictures and those videos and that data surrounding that. So we anticipated at that point. Um, given the scope of this disease, given the scope and the real tragedy, given the deaths that occurred from this disease and the illnesses that occurred from this disease, we did anticipate that we were gonna see a fair number of lawsuits. Mm -hmm. um, as somebody who has committed my career to working on the insurance and the legal side of healthcare, I have come to the position that most lawsuits are not about bad care. Most lawsuits that hospitals face and doctors face are, a bit, are about a challenging outcome. And then the question is, will people understand that challenging outcome? Do we have the records and the witnesses and the ability to express and to explain that challenging outcome? It's not about bad care, it's about a poor outcome. Uh, with COVID, this was a terrible disease and is a terrible disease that required sort of a global response. And three years later, we've seen, you know, COVID is still around. It is, thank goodness, due to a host of different things, uh, not the, the, the virulent process that it was. It's still a terrible thing. And yeah. there are people 
people are getting sick and they're still dying. Um, but the lawsuits have come and I wanna talk about what's happened and then I wanna answer your question. I'm sorry about the long answer. No, no worries. Um, the, the TDC group uh, and the country really thought there were gonna be many, many more lawsuits than there were. And the good news is that the number of lawsuits that we have seen, and while we're taking them very seriously, is not what we we feared it would be. It has been less. Mm. And I, in my view, it is less because of two reasons. It is less because much of the world really understands how challenging it was and that healthcare really stepped up. Um, you know, early we talked about healthcare heroes. That was a term that came about early in this pandemic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think one of the dilemmas we face is that when you mix healthcare uh, and, and politics, you end up with politics. So uh, th- there has been a, a certain amount of confusion. Uh, I certainly would not have anticipated uh, the vaccine hesitancy, uh, the opposition to masks that has occurred in the country. But notwithstanding that, the number of lawsuits we have seen um, has, has really leveled off, I think is starting to, to be on the decline relative to the diagnosis and treatment of COVID patients. Uh, I think the, the best statement I could put is uh, there are claims, but the number itself is somewhat underwhelming. We thought there would be more. I'm pleased that there are less than we thought there would be. Mm-hmm. Um, are we now seeing additional lawsuits that I'll say tangentially are related to COVID? And the answer to that is yes. And those are falling into predominantly two buckets. The first bucket is about uh, the treatment, the diagnosis and the treatment of long COVID. Uh, People are manifesting symptoms, whether it is fatigue or cardiac symptoms or renal symptoms or neuropathies. People are, 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 are manifesting certain things and healthcare is catching up and they're trying to figure out what is related to what. Uh, I think there is an ever increasing knowledge base surrounding what is long COVID, but patients are a little fatigued about, in, in the emotional sense mm. about this. And we are seeing some claims relative to not properly diagnosed and adequately treating long COVID. Uh, and this is a process, I think part of the dilemma is, as with COVID itself, we need data to understand what long COVID is. And that data requires more than your anecdotal or my anecdotal experience. It right. requires a large uh, cohort of, of patients to understand how these things uh, evolve. And there are many clinical studies and trials going on across the country defining that. So we are seeing some lawsuits relative to that. There's a second batch of lawsuits that we are seeing which pertain to sort of the, um, they're related to, but not directly about COVID. It is the patients whose treatment was delayed. It's the patients whose scheduled diagnostic study was deferred. It's about patients that didn't get in to see their primary care physician but had a telehealth visit. It's about patients that um, felt that their thing, their, their situation was emergent or urgent, but the clinician didn't feel that way right. and something was put off. So we are seeing 
some number of lawsuits. And I'm, this podcast um, is occurring at the same time that I'm rolling up the data from the end of the first quarter to see where we're currently at. I was looking at the data at the end of the last business quarter, at the end of um, the fourth quarter of 2022, as opposed to the first quarter of 2023, to see where we were at with, with the number of claims. Um, the number of claims related to, uh, for instance, a delay in diagnosing breast cancer, a delay in diagnosing colon cancer, um, a, lay, a, a delay in diagnosing lung cancer, because it's really cancer. Somebody didn't come in, somebody wasn't seen. Right. Um, we're, we're seeing a, a number of those. I can't say that it is um, a chart-topping number, but we are seeing a number of those. And we're seeing a number of cases that relate to the failure to escalate for an in-person visit, the failure to escalate for an emergency room presentation when the encounter had been, as Jay, you and I are meeting virtually. Yeah. Uh, and and the, you know those are cases that are going to play out over the next few years, um, and it's going to depend upon a host of circumstances. So there are a number of claims in both of those camps. It's not a huge number. We're sort of uh, collecting them as we currently go forward. Um, so we are seeing some lawsuits. It's not a large number of those lawsuits. It's also a somewhat underwhelming number. Uh, and I'll, I'll touch back on the qualified immunity and then spring back to this. New York State was one of the first states to enact a qualified immunity. It occurred through then Governor Cuomo's executive order. It then became codified in a statute from the legislature. Those immunities said that you can sue, but you need to prove gross negligence. Those lawsuits were filed uh, across the TDC group in both New York and elsewhere. We asserted on behalf of our physicians and hospitals, those qualified immunities as defenses. And we are now seeing those qualified immunities being evaluated by the court. And the courts um, have been upholding those immunities to be valid. So we are beginning to see lawsuits get dismissed. Now, this is the, the, the it, the, the difference in the delay factor between the pre presentation of an illness and the full manifestation of those symptoms and the uh, occurrence of a, of a poor outcome. And anybody that isn't cured, I understand their, their point of view. This wasn't a good outcome. Um, between the, the, the sort of the development of a poor outcome and the filing of a lawsuit and then the courts entertaining an application to dismiss a case. Because you would say to me, I don't understand. We're three years in. Why is it only now that we're learning about this? Why is it only now in, in April of 23 that we're learning about how the courts are construing these uh, qualified immunities? And it's, um, it's because of what's called the cycle time of lawsuits. Mm -hmm. It has taken a fair amount of time for the facts, for the lawsuits to be filed, for the facts to be developed, and for the applications to be made to the courts to dismiss these cases. Uh, the courts understandably want to treat both sides fairly. They want to process the facts. Um, so we're now seeing the early wave of COVID lawsuits. Um, we're seeing a lot of success getting them dismissed. And I anticipate on the other side of this, which will take a few more years, that the, the lion's share of these lawsuits will get dismissed. Okay. Relative to these other cases, um, 
where the qualified immunities don't apply, we are asserting that the standard of care was met. And we believe that we will also be uh, sort of meritorious in connection with the defense of those cases because we believe the judgments that physicians made in connection with seeing patient A, referring patient B, or, or deferring patient C were rational, appropriate judgments. But we're going to need to support those judgments with facts. And we believe as we go forward, we'll be able to. Do you see the rest of the country following suit? Um... Uh, in, like New York in terms of the qualified immunity statute? Will they kind of try to do something similar? Uh, yes. The, much of the country adopted similar qualified immunity provisions because much of the country also asked healthcare to do more with less. Uh, and in doing so, much of the country provided these qualified immunities and the qualified immunities, and I've spoken to people from other insurance companies, and I've spoken with, with people in, sort of across the country, and everyone is taking these immunities, recognizing what was done and asserting these immunities. And as we're seeing the immunities being upheld in New York, I think the immunities, I know that they've been asserted, and I believe they're going to be upheld across the country. Um, we have, I, as the COVID coordinator for, for the doctor's company, uh, I'm aware of what we're doing from California to New York um, uh, and everywhere in between. And, and we are asserting these. We are seeing success with them. And I'm aware that that's happening elsewhere. I, I will just put out there that there's an enormous number of lawsuits beyond healthcare related to um, employer liability uh, rising from COVID. And this deals with vaccine mandates and masking and other protocols that were put into place by employers across the country beyond healthcare, trying to, to manage and to deal with this, this you know, crisis. Uh, and that has been a very large number of claims that's outside of my space with uh, healthcare. But it is something that I'm aware of. But and and the qualified immunities don't apply in that space. The qualified immunities apply relative to the delivery of healthcare. But okay. yes, I I believe the rest of the country will follow New York, and the judges will uphold these qualified immunities. Um, and you mentioned long COVID uh, earlier, and um, you know, obviously, there's a lot we don't know about it still. Uh, you know, it seems like from one person to the next who has it, the symptoms are very different uh, and when they kick in and how it manifests. Um, you know, how do you see those long COVID lawsuits and, uh, the, mis and the misdiagnosis of, of long COVID, how do you see that playing out in terms of, uh, you know, success with those, with those lawsuits and the claims? Well, physicians, whether it be a, an acute, uh, clinic, a doctor, a hospital, an emergency room need to be able to reach a diagnosis and not necessarily just rely on a diagnosis of exclusion. As you mentioned, long COVID is something that the meets and bounds of which are still being defined. Um, let's make sure as healthcare that we effectively communicate with patients that I believe what you have is long COVID. You've had a history, you received a vaccine, um, 
you plus or minus had COVID, you're experiencing certain symptoms. This is consistent with, but not exactly diagnostic of long COVID. It could be other things. So before we reach the diagnosis of long COVID, there needs to be adequate communication between provider and patient that I think this is long COVID, but we need to have follow-up. We need to anchor back our relationship with one another and the success um, uh, of healthcare in defending lawsuits brought by patients who say that they were either misdiagnosed with long COVID or alternatively uh, were properly diagnosed with long COVID but not properly treated requires ongoing communication between provider and patient. And it needs that providers need to stay current in connection with our, our sort of collective understanding of long COVID. We need to make sure that these patients are not lost to follow up. We need to make sure that we are not, we're not relying on long COVID as a diagnosis before we've ruled out other things as well. Um, the problem is, Jay, as you mentioned, not only are the presentations of long COVID different from patient to patient, the problems are also that there is no diagnostic test per se right. for long COVID. There's not a, well, let's do the long COVID biopsy. Okay, well, that doesn't exist. Put it to the side. We can't do that. Let's do the long COVID blood test. Well, we, we know there are certain markers in connection with people that have had COVID, but we can't necessarily at the moment say, this is pathognomonic for that. This is diagnostic of that. So right. it really means that the there will be claims. Um, and in the uh, space of defending healthcare, hospitals, physicians, medical extenders, nurses, et cetera, they defend these claims with uh, a couple of things. The principal piece of evidence, the very first piece of evidence in all of these cases is the medical record. Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's the, the old-fashioned paper chart, which is, is, is really uh, a rarity these days, and more likely the electronic health record, that health record needs to identify the clinician's thinking, his or her clinical judgment. It needs to be a repository of the essential communications, not all of the communications, but the essential communications to the patient, so that if there is a claim similar to the way one could open a time capsule and look back the electronic health record can be used as a tool as a look back here's what we discussed here's what we were thinking here's what we did to rule in and to rule out and here's how we followed up so the, the our ability to successfully defend these claims which i believe the claims will come i also believe will be successful in defending them is in large measure dependent upon our ability to have thoughtful records Mm -hmm. um, what types of professionals will be most affected by these lawsuits um, that have been coming out for, you know, related to COVID? Uh, I'll start broad and I'll go narrow. Uh, obviously, healthcare professionals take claims very seriously, and it is uh, something very personal to them. This is their career. It's very different than other kinds of claims. Uh, in this particular space, I think primary care physicians, gastroenterologists, um, um, ED physicians, 
pulmonologists are going to be front and center. Mm-hmm. With regard to did we make the proper diagnosis? You know, there's going to be there. There's the acute phase of everybody. All forces were brought to bear in connection with this crisis. So really, from March of 20, um, probably t- until March of 21, when the vaccine started to roll out, people from different spe- specialties within healthcare were brought forth and said, you know, I understand that you are. Um, uh, a pain management physician. I understand that you are a general surgeon. I understand that you are uh, a neurologist. You're going to be helping us now dealing with patients in the ED. You're going to be helping us on the floor dealing with these COVID patients. We are um, uh, changing some of the credentialing requirements. We are doing different things to get more medical professionals on the floor. Uh, in the acute phase, a lot of physicians were filling roles that they'd had training for, but was not their area of subspecialization. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in, in the acute phase, a lot of different specialties were impacted. As we emerge further along, this is going to be more a diagnostic issue. It's going to pertain more towards um, primary care physicians and emergency physicians. Obviously, to the extent that there were delays in treating people, it's going to be impacting the gastroenterologists. It's going to be impacting the surgeons that deferred biopsies. Etc. But I think emergency room and primary care are going to be front and center. Okay. Um, and wanted to kind of wrap things up by asking, what are the lessons learned, you know, from all of these um, lawsuits and sort of the I know it's ongoing, but uh, you know, in the case of something similar, you mentioned, you know, you're hoping this is the only pandemic <laughs> of our lifetime. You know, in the event something like this happens again. Um, you know, what are some lessons learned that we can kind of apply, uh, you know, from a, I guess, a liability standpoint? Uh, again, our first pandemic in, in a century, uh, I think it will make us better prepared. God forbid there be another one. Uh, continuing to uh, educate folks. Hopefully, one of the lessons that we've really learned as a nation. And I know this is this is maybe too aspirational, Jay, but the problems that arise from mixed messaging, we saw certain things coming from the White House, we saw certain things coming from state houses, and it created a lot of noise, a lot of confusion, it generated a lot of heat and didn't really provide as much light or insight as we need. The importance of messaging, the importance of getting the right message out to people and communicating early and often is something that healthcare learned. I also think we were able to establish communication channels with other healthcare organizations and share resources in a way that if this were to happen again, we now know how we can we can share those resources. We know how hospitals in the same city can work together, how they can share resources, how they can expand their capacity. We were able to, in a surge moment, expand the capacity of our emergency rooms. We were able to stretch our resources. We were able to work with one another where ordinarily we're both providing healthcare, but we're doing it in silos. Uh, Some of the silos have been broken down and relationships have been formed. 
And while the disease process may be different, the communicability of the disease may be different, the treatment may be different, it may or may not be a vaccine issue. We have seen how there are synergies to working with other institutions and to working with government and seeing a private sector, public sector uh, um, partnership was really effective. We never could have gotten to this point had we not been able to work so well together. And that means from drug manufacturers, equipment manufacturers, to um, staffing agencies, to different institutions, we were able to pull our resources together effectively in an incredibly short period of time. Yeah. Yeah. If you think about, look at the, the, the conceptualizing to the distribution of vaccines. It is and was an accomplishment to be incredibly proud of. Look at the surge capacity from hospitals across the country that went from having a five bed ICU to being able to treat 30 patients in an ICU. Uh, so our, our recognition of our ability to collaborate with one another and to expand and to use our resources in a more efficacious manner is something that we will learn, that we will take from this into God, you know, um, please not let it happen. But if there, if there is another crisis or something, I think it'll help us enormously. Absolutely. Well, Peter, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This has been great. Uh, Jay, a pleasure to meet you. Thank you very much. That wraps up episode 82 of PSQH, the podcast. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks again, and stay safe.